The best place to play fantasy football this summer is Underdog Fantasy. Their Best Ball Mania tournament has $10 million in total prize money, and the best part is you just draft your fantasy football team, and that's it. There's no waivers, no trades, no in-season management. Underdog gives you the best score each week of the season and the highest scores at the end of the year. The champion of Best Ball Mania last year drafted in June, so there's no time like the present to join Underdog and take your shot at a million-dollar draft. Plus, Underdog is going to double your first deposit up to $100 when you sign up with promo code PFF. Also, if you play $10 using promo code PFF, you get a free PFF subscription. So what are you waiting for? Head to underdogfantasy.com or the App Store, play $10 with code PFF, and draft your best ball mania team today. Alrighty, the Monday edition is here. It is me, Solo. Hope you appreciate the Solo Pods, although I know two as a little bit of a of a knock to my ego. You guys are liking the interviews. Uh, maybe even the interviews a little bit more than just hearing me rant for 45 minutes to an hour. So we're going to continue to bring you an interview every week. Last week, I had Josh Hermsmeyer from 538. We had our 10 blasphemous takes, which shockingly, not everyone out there in the internet world agreed with, but we did get a ton of tremendous feedback on that one. So I appreciate the love there. Week before, Ron Yurko, who has worked for some... uh, Sports franchises uh, is a professor at Carnegie Mellon uh, started the NFL scraper package. And then before that, Sean Clement, who has consulted and worked with various NFL franchises this week on Wednesday morning, you will have in your lovely in the lovely confines of your podcast application of your choice. You will have an interview between me and Adam Beard. Adam uh, is a pretty interesting storyline. He started off doing. Australian rules football stuff on the sports science side, worked with the Browns for a number of years during the RIP Sashi era, and then moved to the Chicago Cubs, another analytically inclined franchise, although baseball, that doesn't say quite as much as it does in other sports, but it's going to help us out with sports science because I need some help being able to gauge everything there. And I think it'll be a very cool interview about stuff that's a huge part of the NFL, probably even a bigger part of the NFL and other sports leagues than when we look at you know, to argue about some of the fourth down stuff, some of the pass run ratio, some of that stuff, uh, high adoption rates on a lot of the sports science stuff. So it'll be great to talk to Adam about that. Okay, today, the big tease, I'll say, is I have determined who is the most powerful person in the NFL, in the NFL universe. But I'm going to get to that later. I'll reveal who that is. Uh, It'll be part of some Deshaun Watson talk, although I'm going to try to hit that again, sticking with the focus of the podcast from the quote-unquote unexpected angle here and not hit all of the same points that you may be hearing elsewhere. So that will come later. We'll start with more newsy sort of items, but again, trying to come at them from an angle that you're not necessarily going to hear anywhere. So the first piece of news that I want to talk about from the last week is the Cooper Cup extension, which once again, has the cap is real truthers like myself on the defensive. We're in retreat again, as the Rams 
not only do they stuff us in a locker, all of us cap nerds and analytical nerds in a locker when it comes to trading away all their picks, F them picks. By the way, copyright me. I was the one who came up with that. F them picks, Les Snead and everyone there. We're going to, you know, sign, we're going to spend picks on Gurley in the past and then sign up to a big contract and then get rid of them. We're going to send picks to for Matthew Stafford, the, the most hated quarterback amongst the nerds. A little bit of an overstatement there, but you know what I mean. We're going to win a Super Bowl, and then you know what we're going to do? We're going to go ahead and just pay everyone a ton of money. You know, we're going to tear up Aaron Donald's three-year contract and give him a new contract that's going to pay him $40 million more million over the next three years for no reason, really, other than to maybe head off retirement. We're going to pay Cooper Cup and make him the having the highest, at least optically, contract of any wide receiver in the league. We're going to pay out Matthew Stafford after already having paid out a ton of money to people like Jalen Ramsey in the past after trading away picks for them. They're just continuing to dunk on us, the Rams. Continuing, continuing, continuing to dunk on us. So um, let's talk about the details here of the cup contract to get the proper framing for what this is. So three years, $80 million is the headline numbers on this, which makes his current deal going forward now to be five years for $110 million, $20 million signing bonus. So it's actually a pretty low signing bonus, which I think is interesting that the Rams were not doing this deal to dramatically lower the cap hit in year one. They did slightly lower the cap hit in year one by about a million dollars, but this wasn't a, we need room type of deal. This was structuring it in a way where he's going to get paid a decent salary in year one. This is one of these $1 million salary in year one deals. So $35 million is fully guaranteed on this, and another $20 million becomes guaranteed next March at the start of the league year. So it's de facto $55 million guaranteed, which would be the highest amount out there. Um, again, when you want to look at this, probably the best way to do it is look at Cup's number and say, let's compare this to Devontae Adams. Let's compare this to Tyreek Hill. Two players who are also on their third contracts at this point. This is the third contract for Cup getting it, having it torn up a little bit early here and extended here. Um, you could bring Stefan Diggs into the equation too, but I'm just going to stick with looking at uh, Hill and looking at Devontae Adams. So the Rams have an out in this deal where in three years, so after 2022, 2023, 2024, three years, they can get out having paid a total of $70 million and they'll have a $10.3 million cap hit. So I think that's the best way to look at this contract. This contract isn't as skewed towards putting fake years on the back end like the Adams and Hill deals were. But I think there's a, if I was going to flip a coin right now as to whether or not three years from now, Cooper Cup, they'll use this out either for leverage to restructure the deal, maybe for a little bit more team friendly deal, or they'll straight up release him at that point. I think there's a decent chance of it happening. Not a coin flip, but a decent chance of happening. Um, so I think that's the best way to look at this is to say 70 million, three years. For math majors out there, that's 23.33333 to infinity um, million per season over the next three years. So if you look at the Tyreek Hill deal, and again, we talk about some of the fake years at the end of this thing. I mean, there's a $50 million cap hit in the last year of this new <laughs> Tyree kill extension. That ain't happening people. 
Um, maybe they'll be restructured and it'll continue to be on the team at that point. But you know, that's just an absurd number. But Tyreek Hill, his number is actually a little bit better. So I think the, I think the proper way to view this deal versus Tyreek Hill is is not quite as good as Tyreek Hill's is. Tyreek is a little bit more difficult to figure out the numbers on there. But if you look at the cash that he can get over the next three years, it's $72 million. And it's weird to think about the fact that Tyreek Hill is younger than Cooper Cup. He is, you know, Cup is about to turn 29 years old very soon. Hill does not turn 29 until next March. And Hill entered the NFL a year before Cooper Cup did. So Cooper Cup is a very old prospect as he came in. But that's just something also to think about with these numbers and how you view these guys. And I think, honestly, if you were going to go to all... 32 GMs, maybe we don't go to Les Snead because he's very attached, obviously, to Cooper Cup. Let's say we go to, let's, let's throw the two GMs who currently have these guys. So let's say we go to the 30 GMs throughout the league and we said to them, same contract, next three seasons, who would you rather have? Who would you pick? Tyreek Hill, who had a you know good year, but not an outstanding year from his perspective, or Cooper Cup, who was the you know triple crown receiving winner, uh, nailing every statistical category, shattering numbers, offensive player of the year, Super Bowl champion. I still think, I don't know, 25 out of 30, maybe even higher, would take Tyreek Hill. So the number for Hill being higher makes sense to me. I think he's in a different tier of player, despite the fact that Cup had this awesome, awesome season. Now, I am not going to go as far as my analytical brethren here at PFF, uh, PFF underscore Moo on Twitter, uh, Timo Risque, he had a self-reference hot take here where he says, hot take, the Raiders paid like 60% of what the Rams paid to the same player. So Hunter Refro got a two-year deal, $32 million a year. And yeah, as you'd imagine... Timo got a little bit of cancellation on this. Sorry, you're canceled. But I'm a little surprised it wasn't a higher cancellation than I thought. Uh, 709 replies, so that's never a good thing. The old traditional ratio. And then the new ratio now is quote tweets to, to retweets. So 611 quote tweets, because those are more commonly the dunks. And then, but still 426 retweets, 9,000 likes. So maybe he didn't get canceled. Maybe he only got partially canceled on that one. And it's kind of surprising the fact that he's not getting totally and completely canceled on this. I know part, part of that is going to be, you know, uh, Raiders fans who have some impassioned opinions about their team who probably are liking and retweeting that. But the fact that he didn't get totally, completely canceled on this hints to me a common perception that Cup despite being this head and shoulders above everyone else go, uh, for his year, for his results for the season is still not going to be viewed as that guy going forward. I mean, let's remember this guy was a, I don't know, third round fantasy pick going into this last year, basically equivalent to Robert Woods, which I didn't quite understand going into this year. Uh, so I still don't think he's quite, quite on that level there for, for Tyreek Hill. Now, if we go turn to Devonte Adams and Devonte Adams is a little bit older. But again, came into the league much earlier. So he's a little bit older. His is going to be more, a little bit under $70 million over the next three years. And then he has a $40 million cap hit in his last two seasons. So you can probably wipe those away. Those aren't going to happen either. So I think when you look at where Cup came in, 
it's Hill, Cup, Adams. And it those are actually ranked in their ages. I think it's probably ranked in their 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 team independent talent levels, perhaps also. I don't know about Adams where you want to say he is, but I still think there are question marks there with him having never played with anyone but Aaron Rodgers there. So I think Cup gave a good ish type of deal to the Rams being that they have so many headwinds with how they're negotiating. And that's what I'm going to get into here. The, the cap is fake people who are doing victory laps as the Rams are dunking on us cap obsessed nerds. So number one, for a long-term strategy, paying players too much money and then continually restructuring their deals can work if those players never fall off. So we've seen this with the Saints. We're seeing this here with the Rams where they've been good at cutting bait pretty early on some players. And then for other players like Aaron Donald or players that they trade a bunch for like Jalen Ramsey or now Cooper Cup this last season, although not necessarily in the past, they stay healthy, they put up a ton of production, and then they the age cliff hasn't set in for any of these guys. Now, Donald is famously never injured. He is 31 years old, though. Uh, Cooper Cup has been very injured in the past, but now he's coming off of a season where he wasn't injured, and they win the Super Bowl, and he wins all these awards. Matthew Stafford, surprisingly was seen as being injury prone if you go all the way back to the beginning of his career where he was getting throttled coming in as the number one overall pick, you know, uh, 0-16, all that stuff, and then got injured and got knocked out of his second season, was seen as being somewhat injury prone at, at that point, and that, that's flipped around. So if you get those big seasons from them, it's working well. But let's just face it. Let's not throw all logic out the window. It's generally going to be bad business for your chance of winning and a sustained ability going forward to say after a season where we win the Super Bowl, but we were not the best team in the NFL. Like look at the odds going forward for this season. If we look at Super Bowl odds right now, the Rams are one, two, three, four, fifth in the NFL to win the Super Bowl this coming year. And that's probably around where they were as far as how good of a team they were last last year. They were like a top five team, but not the best team in the NFL. So you're coming over that season, but you have these negotiating leverage issues of coming off of a Super Bowl. So when you decide in that type of year to extend your quarterback, extend your best skill position player, and extend your best defensive player, all coming off of those deals, you know, it's not going to be great. Not going to be a great situation you're going to put yourself in going forward. And the the cap is fake stuff. We'll see in a year or two whether or not people are still dunking for the cap is fake. Because doing it in the short term, doing it when you're extending your own players makes absolutely no sense. They're lowering the cap hits for these guys uh, in in the short term. If you already have a player under contract and you're extending them 90% of the time now with these deals unless they were getting paid a very minimal amount and you had them on a cheap, cheap contract. And then and now you're extending them going forward. But for most of these guys, the number is going down in the current year. So now is not the time. I, I'm willing to accept that the cap is fake. People are going to be able to dunk on us. The F them picks. People are going to be able to dunk on us going forward. Let's wait a little bit longer. Let's see what happens in a year or two. Let's see what happens when you have 
a top five team, but not a clear number one team in the NFL paying all of your players at these league leading rates. And again, if they, if they continue to stay healthy, like Donald just play like a freak, not age, stay healthy. And that happens again with cup who has missed a lot of time in the past, but did not last season. It continues with Stafford. It continues with Jalen Ramsey. Famously, the Rams have one of the lowest adjusted game loss numbers because they've stayed so healthy there. If that all continues going forward, you know, dunk away. I will accept the dunks. I will accept the punishment. I will accept the shame if need be. But for now, now's not the time to really dunk. Come at me in a year or two, and then we'll do some serious dunking. Okay, the other piece of NFL news is that I think is important coming at it. We're probably a lot, a lot of people are not focusing on it, but I think it's an interesting angle is the, the Broncos sale. So this is about NFL ownership is continuing to level up here. If you look at what happened over the last couple of sales, the Broncos sell for 4.65 million. So just straight up right off of the bat, that's a big number. That's a number that timing wise, if we look at some of the consternation that was going on during COVID a couple of years ago, if you go back further for a $2 billion and change sale was most recent to David Tepper for the Carolina Panthers. Now, the Carolina Panthers are probably not on the same level as the Denver Broncos in a lot of ways. The Broncos having won you know, Super Bowls with multiple Super Bowls with John Elway, multiple Super Bowls with Peyton Manning. There's going to be a little more cachet there than there's going to be for a team like the, like the Carolina Panthers um, for the Broncos. But still, that's a big number. That's way over the amount there. And the story for me here, and this goes back to Tepper, and it goes back to some of these other owners who have been the guys that have had some turnover over the last 10 years, is these dudes are rich, rich that are coming in now to own these teams. And it's going to change the dynamic of the NFL quite a bit between the haves and the have-nots, between the guys who are rich, rich, meaning they have massive money-generating assets outside of the NFL franchise and owners who are rich. I mean, they're still kind of rich, rich, but maybe they're not like rich, 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 rich. Uh, Guys who are normally the inherited these teams from family that acquired it when it was a much, much lower amount. So, for instance, Pat Bolin, who died in 2018, this is a little bit of a lower level thing here, but, you know, he passed it on to his children, did not give very explicit instructions for what to do with the team. So ever since 2018, it's been like something's going to going to happen with this with this uh, franchise. Four point six five billion dollars. Now, even though NFL franchises throw off a ton of cash, if you have nine different siblings who are trying to figure out who's going to run this thing, who isn't. Uh, that cash will slowly bleed out, but you're not going to get the paid the huge amount until there's going to be a sale. I mean, it's going to be pretty obvious. You're going to say, let's take the $4.35 billion. I mean, $4.65 billion. Let's divide that by nine people. That's a cool half a billion per person. And they're going to say, you know what? I'll take the half a billion rather now, rather than get my one ninth share of the operating profits for this enterprise over the next 10, 15 years. Just makes a lot of sense. It's going to happen a lot. It happens a lot when we talk about passing on assets, especially to children who probably haven't been hugely successful in their own right. 
to really want to hold on to the asset as opposed to go ahead and, and take that half a billion dollars up front. So if you think about Pat Bowen, I mean, it wasn't like he didn't have assets outside of the Broncos, but not like Rob Walton, the guy who's buying the Broncos. The guy who's buying the Broncos here is an heir to the Walmart fortune. He is worth $60 billion, $60 billion, with a B. Uh, Pat Bolin bought this franchise in 1984 for $70 million. So some interesting math on that, not even counting all of the operating profit that it's been throwing off for the past 38 years. If you just look at the annualized return on the, on the, the franchise value, uh, I did a quick calculation here. So 70 million turning into 4.65 billion over 38 years. That's 115% annual return for the last 38 years, annualized return. So every year you're getting that on top of all the cash that you were making on top of that. Um, but again, going up to the leveling up and why this is important here. So Walton, who's purchasing the franchise, is worth 60 billion. Tepper, David Tepper, the last franchise sale, which happened a number of years ago to uh, a handful of years ago, for the Carolina Panthers, he was the richest owner in the NFL. So the most recent guy to buy was the most was the richest owner in the NFL at 16 billion. So Walton is worth three and a half, four times as much as the current richest owner in the NFL. And the third richest owner in the NFL is Stan Kroenke, who owns the Rams, $10 billion. And he's actually married to another Walton. Uh, he bought that team in 2010. So not super recent, but 12 years ago. Uh, Shad Khan bought the Jaguars in 2012. He's worth 7.7 billion, so he's one of the top three or four uh, richest owners out there. Jimmy Haslam is worth four billion dollars. He bought the Browns in 2012. So when you look at all these guys, how it's going to change the dynamic of the NFL is more upfront cash, more guarantees, less worry about dead money, which are all trends that we're seeing throughout the NFL. Like think about Kroenke and what they're doing here, tearing up the Aaron Donald contract and throwing a ton of money at him. Think about Jimmy Haslam and the Browns when they fully guarantee Deshaun Watson's entire contract. And a lot of owners are like, what are you doing here? Not just because of oh, what are you doing guaranteeing a huge amount to this person who's accused of all these assaults? Like, they don't give a shit about any of that stuff. What they're saying, what you're doing is when you're guaranteeing all this money, you're setting a precedent where you have to put all of this into escrow. You have to have all of that cash up front, ready to go set aside once you put a guarantee on it. And that's why teams, even teams who have rich owners, they would rather hold that money than not and what they're going to say is, we'll give you a certain amount up front, we'll have a certain guarantee, and then we'll do these rolling guarantees. So the year before, which kind of makes it a de facto guarantee, because you'd have to cut someone two years in advance, you'd pay them out their entire guaranteed salary for the next year. If you cut them, which makes that almost cost prohibitive for a lot of quarterbacks. So by doing these rolling guarantees, it doesn't force you to come up with all that cash right on day one. You're just putting that cash into escrow for a year in advance in each year. So who are the type of owners that are going to be dealing with this? Well, I think this is going to accelerate the possibility for teams to be sold because as of right now, without a death and split between siblings, people are not incentivized to sell these teams because it's a great thing. Um, and all of these, these NFL teams are profitable franchises, unlike some other sports 
where we've seen a lot more sales and a lot more turnover, turnover in ownership. I mean, think about some of the, the owners that we have in the NFL right now. Mark Davis, his dad, Al Davis, was, an, was a coach and somehow gained ownership over a team. Imagine that. Talk about having no assets. Talk about having no huge businesses outside of anything. This guy was an NFL coach who ended up somehow acquiring in the 70s the rights to have ownership over over the Raiders. Now, I don't know all the details there. Someone could probably add in more to that. Maybe there's a little bit more to the story there. But anyway, you know, Mark Davis, he poor versus these other guys as far as what cash flow and resources he can tap outside of the team itself. Jim Irsay is another one. Uh, his father sold a automobile related business and bought the team in the early seventies. I don't think he has a ton of business interests outside of the Indianapolis Colts and the ability to pay a bunch up front again. And that, I think that feeds into the Chris Ballard dynamic, not willing to pay free agents, all that sort of stuff. I think that probably feeds in a bit is what, is what the ownership angle there. Uh, the Kings of the, of the poor quote unquote, poor owners, uh, the Rooney's, I mean, they have been in charge of the Steelers since their inception in 1933. So at that time, I think it was a few tens of thousands of dollars to, to found this team, which is now worth billions of dollars. And what the Roonies did, where again, you're probably, you might see this also for some other places, they've sold off most of their interest in the Steelers while retaining a 30% minimum that they need to still have control over the team. And they've functioned... The Steelers have functioned as almost a feeder organization into NFL ownership. Jimmy Haslam had a minority ownership there, which which kind of tested him out and vetted him before he got the Browns ownership. David Tepper had a minority ownership there before he ended up getting filtered into the Panthers ownership. So that's how it's been done there. But again, they've had to sell off a lot of interest. And they're also a team that's very much known for not giving huge signing bonuses in the past, not giving big guarantees that extended out. I think the Antonio Brown contract was the first time they did that. And then they got, you know, kind of screwed in the end on the cap hit that they had to take on that very much trying to play as a pay as you go type of thing because of the structure of the team and the wealth of the ownership. So it's going to divide even more now with the NFL with Walton coming in who again is four times as rich as anyone else there, but it's going to divide even more the haves and the have nots, the guys who have credible businesses that are worth billions of dollars outside of their NFL franchises, how they can pony up money for players because we're also dealing a little bit in this player empowerment sort of era where guys like Aaron Rodgers and uh, Aaron Donald can threaten to rip up to retire to have their contracts ripped up and give them a bunch of money players who are holding out more and more and able to move around more with aggressive ownership, willing to resign them and pay them a ton of money. More of the have or have not is going to happen in the NFL. So then two things are going to happen. You're going to see this reflected in the results for some of these teams where we're not going to have super teams. But we're going to have a little bit higher degree of talent concentrated in certain areas, especially if players feel like they can come to a team and then get paid on the back end, like these Rams players have done, getting paid for past performance in such a way that you just would not have seen that in the past. So that's that's one of the angles there. And the other angle is, you know, we may see some sales uh, or expedite the process of team ownership changing hands, which if money comes in like Walton type of money, there's not a lot of Walton money out there that type of money. But if we have guys who are going to come in 
and they're going to be hugely rich guys coming into these different areas, you're going to see an acceleration of that. Um, but what I'm also hoping for from an analytics angle, and I don't know if we're going to get that with these teams is also when these guys have more money to throw around, they have more money to throw around in the front office that does not apply to the salary cap that does not apply to the money that they're already spending on coaches and other people, but to hire more and more people in the front office who will work on the analytical side of things. Cause for my, for my very biased opinion is that would be the best way for the nouveau rich NFL ownership that's coming in here to spend some of that money, enhance the value of their team and not have to worry about cash flow nearly as much as some other ownership would have to do. All right, let's get to another ad read here. Manscaped. 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 Gentlemen, Father's Day is right around the corner. Manscaped's Performance Package 4.0, which includes their signature Lawnmower 4.0, is the perfect bundle to tackle any or all old man hair from head to toe. This right here is no dad joke. Treat yourself and join the 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer. Get 20% off and free shipping with code PFF at manscaped.com. And of course, PFF, get your content on. Promo code unexpected, 25% off all the locked article content. I'm going to start up my series on the breakout wide receivers and breakout running backs, uh, finding those guys for this coming season. All that locked article content is going to be there. Projections, rankings, all that stuff is filtering into the site right now for the fantasy football season. And of course, the grades and the other data that you're so used to here at PFF. Promo code unexpected, 25% off. Get her done and go ahead and do it. All right, now let's get into, I probably should have had music for this one. Dun, 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 the most powerful man in the NFL. Oh, I kind of gave away some of it there because I was going to say most powerful person. It is a man, shockingly, um, that I'm going to point to here. And let me start, let me back up a bit by why I came to this particular topic. And it's based on a digestion of information and reaction for what we've seen over the last week with Deshaun Watson. More Deshaun Watson news. I know I've hit this topic ad nauseum. I'm not going to hit it from the normal angle that a lot of people are going to hit it for. What's the suspension going to be? What should it be? How disgusted are we? Did he do it? Did he not do it? All this sort of thing. I mean, I'm uh, that's well-worn territory on this podcast. You're ahead of the curve for all of that there. Here, um, if you thought that somehow this was going to just move on to Deshaun Watson sweepstakes and never have to talk about it again, uh, and the suspension would come down and we'd move on very easily. You know, there's a lot that I've said here that has hinted at the fact that that was a, I was a little incredulous of the fact that that was going to happen. And it looks like as the drip, drip, drip of different leaks and different accusers come out with Watson, it's going to continue to be part of the news. But let me get a couple things just up front of this Watson thing before I get into the most powerful person in the NFL. Number one, this angle of can they avoid the guarantees? Can they not avoid it? What would the Browns do? Would they want to avoid the guarantees? The Browns have paid Watson already on this extension $50 million. They paid out three first round picks, multiple day two picks, late round picks, a ton of stuff here. They've taken all this grief. They've, they've, they've weathered the storm to a degree. Maybe they're them fully weathered the storm yet clearly but they've weathered some of the storm they went through the whole process of recruiting him they did everything else there like why would they even consider cutting him at this point if you're willing to do all those things if you're willing to look past 22 different accusers 
And the fact that he had 40-plus masseuses, we knew before this 66 number came out, before we got a couple of new accusers um, to bump this number up to 24, before we got this article, which didn't really say anything new as far as the directional issues with Watson and his likelihood of having done something very, very wrong, maybe not in the eye, maybe not, maybe not reaching the bar, being able to convince a jury that it's illegal, but it's very, very wrong here. None of that has changed. Okay. So thinking that the Browns would then release him, cut all of those losses, just to have someone scoop him up. It seems patently insane, uh, avoiding the guarantees. Their whole thing is minus going to jail. I don't see anything here. Cause even if he's suspended for two years, he's not getting paid. Well, he's getting suspended for two years. So the Browns are not even paying him. So why would they not pay him for two years, have him come back and then say, you know what? Uh, We're just going to get rid of you. We're just going to get rid of you at that point. I don't think that would nearly be seen as enough of a headache from an optics standpoint. And again, I don't think he's going to be suspended for, for multiple years. So what, why was this such a big thing then last week when this story came out? When... The details, like I said, going from 40 to 60 masseuses, going from 22 to 24 civil cases, going for another you know, like anonymous account when there was an anonymous account in the past that had been reported on by the same reporter, Jenny Vrentis, um, when she was at Sports Illustrated. You know, there's this new angle of the Texans and the NDA thing, but in my opinion, that's much to do about nothing. Uh, I feel like teams are just going to give whatever they want to their star quarterback, whether they they know something nefarious is going on or not. They probably did not know anything. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to be fair to the Texans in that in that regard. So why was this such a big bomb drop last week in people's minds? Um, and I think what I started to realize is, you know, not everyone's plugged in the same way that I am to the details of the previous cases to the severity of everything, to the numbers, the gross numbers that we're talking about here, uh, especially just the number of masseuses. Like, again, I already knew there were 40-something. So saying there's 66 is not, you know, to me, it's 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 a difference, but I don't know if it's a meaningful difference. So why, well, why is that? Uh, when the New York Times report comes out here, which gets shared a ton of times here on social media and other places, uh, why has it become a big deal? And then I start to realize that people generally got into this mode of indictment doesn't happen. Grand jury indictment doesn't happen. Full on, unadulterated, head headlong, head first rush from all of NFL media to talk about the Sean Watson sweepstakes. To put everything else in the past. So what I'm realizing now is that if you travel, maybe in some of the informational lanes that I travel in, you have access to a lot of this different information that's going on here. If you don't, it starts to remind me of like how little NFL media is really talking about the meat and substance of what's going on here, especially NFL insider media. Now, there's plenty of people you're probably following who are more opinionated side, who are bringing this up and are doing others. But if we look at you know the biggest people in the NFL media establishment, Let's look at, just look at the Twitter feeds of Adam Schefter and Ian Rappaport. Let's take those two guys for a larger proxy of the NFL insider world. There is zero indication 
on either one of their Twitter feeds over the last week that anything happened. Re Deshaun Watson, despite the fact that not only were these re- uh, uh, additional details to the revelations came out, not only was there a, a new accuser who was unknown to Watson and to his attorneys, they didn't realize that this person was even a possibility. Not only did Tony Busby, the attorney for Watson, now bring the Texans potentially into the case. That's kind of an interesting thing. We'll see if he actually does or not, but that's a very reportable NFL angle. But there's nothing. There's nothing from Schefter, nothing from Ian Rappaport. And if you start to look back even further, you know, again, Jenny Francis' story has been shared by 10,000 people uh, on Twitter. It was the biggest story of the NFL week, the first couple of of um, days last week. So not only have they not shared anything there, they haven't shared anything that could be even remotely considered to be negative or from the accuser's attorneys or their angle. Remember, there's the HBO Real Sports episode that happened not too long ago with with some interviews of the accusers. Um, There's been other detail that's come out. They haven't shared anything at all from that angle. And even if you go back before the indictment, they really were not sharing anything. Yet there's a steady stream of statements uh, from either Deshaun Watson's attorneys or Deshaun Watson's agents, which they were sharing uh, not too long ago. Even when, you know, um, Rusty Harden had this big kerfuffle a couple of weeks ago where he did this story mentioning the happy endings thing. That didn't get shared by either one of them. But when Rusty Harden the week before that did an interview where it was basically like a PR uh, podcast, that was shared on a quote tweet by Ian Rappaport saying, interesting discussion or something like that, where it was basically just PR for Deshaun Watson. So, like, why is this happening? Now, you could say, oh, don't be naive. You know, they're protecting the shield. They're there to protect the NFL and no one else. But the reality is the shield or the teams or even the players themselves as being something that people are being protected is overplayed. That angle is overplayed, in my opinion. And I'm doing some speculation here. Don't get me wrong. I think that angle is overplayed and to put it in that way. And the real protection, the real motivation, the real actors who have this control and influence are the NFL agents. When these insiders and what they break their bread on is getting information first, is getting information before anyone else, is getting information which may be more detailed sometimes, which may be more educational sometimes, but really it's getting information first. And... Teams sometimes have motivations to leak independent of the actors within those teams, like players and coaches and uh, front office people sometimes have motivations to leak and to frame things in certain ways. But the vast majority of what these NFL uh, insiders are getting their information from are from agents, whether it be what's going on with contract uh, negotiations, whether players are going to show up or not, whether players are happy or not, the news cycle these agents, these agents also represent sometimes coaches and GMs and others. So the agents are the pipeline in my estimation for probably 90, 95% of the information that NFL insiders are getting. So when it comes to this Deshaun Watson case and how the total blackout of information from these guys that would look negative to Watson, I think we have to look no further than to his agent who, in my opinion now could be the most powerful man in the NFL. And that's David Mulligata. Mulligata, excuse me, David Mulligata. He is Watson's agent. And I think also, if you see how he has 
frame these things. Again, he had his he had a retweet after the the grand jury came down and it didn't come and, and there's no charges. He tweeted out, "Keep the same energy." And Schefter retweeted that. There was a wording that was a little bit embarrassing on Schefter's part, and he even semi apologized for it afterwards about how. You know, Deshaun Watson knew and his side knew that when the truth would come out with this indictment, and then he had to back up on that. But the aggressive nature for how the blackout has been, not saying anything, and then how strong the defense has been of him in these situations, which are still very murky, like the indictment not coming down, in my opinion, is being driven by Mulligetta. And Again, the last speculation here, but that, that, that's my opinion. Now, let's look at who this guy is. So he is not only one of the most powerful agents in the NFL. I believe he is the most powerful agent in the NFL. He represents Deshaun Watson, Jalen Ramsey, Micah Parsons, Kyle Pitts, Michael Thomas, uh, a bunch of other guys, A.J. Terrell, Buda Baker, Justin Fields, Kevin Byard, T. Higgins, lots of other first-round picks from the last couple of drafts. There are probably big names I'm missing, but it's hard to necessarily access all this different information. Forbes in 2020 came out with a list of the 200 most powerful sports agents in the world. So this is in the world, all sports. And he had the top ranking for an NFL agent. He was number eight overall on this ranking, having negotiated over $1.6 billion in contracts back in 2020. And his influence has only grown since then and will only grow with this deal that he was able to get for Deshaun Watson, this fully guaranteed deal and the way that he put the no trade clause in there that, that moved him forward here. And even from a bigger basis, the agency that he works with also enhances a lot of his power and this agency's power. Athletes First is the agency that he works with. And the agency's other clients include Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Donald, Dak Prescott, Justin Herbert, many, many more. They have 170-ish NFL clients. Uh, over 100 of those clients were first-round picks. So these are quality, quality players. Other agents, three other agents, or two other agents got on this top two, top uh, most powerful agent list for Forbes who came from athletes first too. So again, that influences part of it also in what he's been able to do and negotiate this blackout of information, negotiate the strength of the response there. And that's been part of this unapologetic response for Watson, which has not been questioned nearly enough to keep the same energy tweet reminds me of Watson, again, offering no regrets at his press conference and then putting his attorney Rusty Harden in kind of a tough spot here where he's saying, yes, I had 66 different uh, masseuses. No, there was, I was, this was a real massage I was seeking, not any sort of anything else. Yes, I offended or made uncomfortable some some women probably because I admit to one was crying, but no, I didn't commit any sort of crime or anything illegal there. Yes, I had sexual contact in some form or manner um, with a few of these women at least. No, it not only was it not well, not only was it consensual, but it wasn't even paid for that there was nothing in there that could even be seen as being like a prostitution sort of sort of angle on that. And this hardline strategy has been picked up by the NFL and the degree it has been picked up in the NFL just makes me realize how 
NFL agents generally are such an underplayed story. Again, you're not going to talk about their influence a lot because they're the exact people that the insiders are getting their information from. But specifically, how Watson's agent, David Mulligetta, has been able to work this angle, work this strategy, deceive a lot of the NFL public via his mouthpieces in the NFL media like Adam Schefter and Ian Rappaport and what has happened going forward. All right, quickly, I'm going to do some mailbag stuff here of what will potentially happen. Okay, so I got a couple. One, I got an email here from Daniel Makey, Maki, I don't know, M-A-K-I-E. Sorry, my pronunciations are god-awful. So he says, uh, ever since the draft, and there's been a two-sided conversation about the Lions and Vikings, who got the best of the deal. One question I've been thinking about when hearing people discuss the value of the trade is if there is any game theory involved with the Vikings' point of view in accepting the trade with the division rival. Does it help the Vikings in any way to take down their strongest division rival, Green Bay, by helping a lesser division rival hypothetically become a better team with Jamison Williams? Um... I'm going to put this into the interesting thought, but galaxy brain category here. I think any way you slice it, if you are trading to a division rival and you're hurting another division rival because you're going to play them two times a year, well, guess what? They're also going to play you two times a year. So it depends on maybe if you wanted to really galaxy brain this, it would be you're not planning to compete. In the short term, a rival is planning to compete in the short term. And then another one is kind of in the middle. And then you're boosting up one, these two guys to kind of kill each other while you're not looking to compete. But then even then, how does that help you really? Other than maybe it's fun to watch, to watch these guys, you know, kill each other rather than be able to step forward here. So I don't think so. What I would say is on the flip side of this, I would in no way, shape or form take less value on a trade because I believe that it can be used in some sort of way to, you know, division rival situation, all that sort of stuff. But I wouldn't demand necessarily more value on a trade in order to trade within the division. And that's something that a lot of teams have talked about. Maybe a slight little increment there. There's going to be a little bit of bad PR there. Obviously, ownership would be involved there. But I guess that would be more of the angle is like, don't worry so much about these rivalries, whether it's the division, whether it's the conference. Yeah, if your guy is eventually going to be facing your team, the guy you trade away in the late rounds of in the conference championship or something like that versus in the Super Bowl if they were in the other conference, whatever, that's fine. It's plenty of good risk to take versus getting the best possible trade on what you're going to do. So I know that's not quite the angle of what I was being asked, but I would say it's a moot point trading within the division or not. And that's how I would view all these different things. Okay, Michael Shea from YouTube. Oh, I also say, if you want to email me, um, as Dan did, uh, kevin.cole at pff.com, go ahead and do that. YouTube is probably the second best place to get something here. Uh, also, Apple Podcast Reviews is a, is a place that I check, not quite as often, but I check sometimes. Uh, Michael Shea from YouTube says, could the same thing be said about asking about paying premium contracts to tight ends? Could the same thing be said about top end safeties, premium contracts about paying tight ends? Maybe not the top three safeties in the league, but the top five, 10 guys. They can generate surplus value from their contract knowing DB's uh, pay is up and down. A play is up and down from one year to the next. Love the podcast. Got my brother and stepdad to listen every week. So debates at the dinner table stem from this podcast. Thank you so much for that. 
Michael uh, extending the the reach of the podcast. Um, it's interesting because I think the tight end conversation was that the the pay there, you don't want to pay up too much for someone because there's such a smaller amount in a franchise tag value and such a differentiation between the top tight ends and the top safety. So can that also be true for, I mean, top tight ends and the mid, mid-range mid tight ends? Could that also be true for safeties? I think it can be, but the safety amount has even gone up a decent amount because there are you know multiple safeties playing for every team versus one tight end. There's even a third safety, which is starting to come into play or a hybrid defensive back, like maybe a Kyle Hamilton, who's going to play for the Ravens who already have a couple of good safeties there. That's going to happen to go, to go forward. So I think the safety market is actually trending in the other direction, despite what we've heard about safeties being undervalued. And I do think that's true. Uh, they're very difficult to judge, but as we get more tracking data to try to judge them, as they become more, of a hybrid player and guarding in the slot and other things that, that raises their value. I think the safety market, if anything, is going to increase in value going forward. And it may be a little bit more justified, the increases in value in that market versus the tight end market where outside of your top, top players, it's not justified to me. So I think safeties are probably an ascending market and tight ends is a very, very stagnant market, especially once Travis Kelsey, who you know is about the same age as Ron Gronkowski, Gronk will be gone. Kelsey will be gone at some point. And then you're just not going to have a lot there without Kyle Pitts potentially ascending into that type of role. There's just not going to be a whole much more there. Okay, those are the two mailbag questions I will hit for today. Otherwise, send me some more on YouTube. Send me some more, kevin.cole at pff.com. I will get to it. And I will be back with you Wednesday morning in your podcast applications an interview with Adam Beard, everything sports science and how it is transforming the league. Until then, everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. I'll talk to you then.